and time to welcome in our midweek media watch man, and that is Hayden Donnell this week. Hayden, good evening. Welcome along. Kia ora, Mark. You wanted to start with the media coverage of kind of what we've just been talking about, the El Ali uh, Hospital in Gaza. Yeah, obviously the biggest news story of the day, the biggest international news story of the day. And for the most part, the media coverage has been defined by what you just heard because it's so uncertain. Claim and counterclaim uh, what Israel says, uh, what Palestinian authorities say. So the New York Times is a typical example that simply said Palestinian officials said the explosion was caused by an Israeli airstrike while Israeli officials blamed a malfunctioning rocket launched by a Palestinian armed group. Now, that's a perfectly accurate sentence. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And you can tell, you, you know why it's done like that, because it's, as you just heard, analysts are saying it could be either one. It's mm. unclear on both sides. Uh, in order to avoid making a judgment on either of those sides. The New York Times reports a claim. The counterclaim leaves it at that. Now, this I wonder whether this is necessarily the most appropriate way to do it. Uh, I kind of think it is in most cases. Mm. If you don't have the facts, there is fog of war. But it is sometimes called both sides journalism, and that doesn't always serve audience as well. It can incentivize sources to make shaky claims, safe in the knowledge that what they say will be reported with little assessment of its actual trustworthiness. But at the same time, the New York Times can't ignore one side or the other in a war, um, you know, particularly, I, I guess, given the, the, the difficulty in verifying what has actually happened and who is at fault. No, and, and it's not saying, I'm not saying that you shouldn't report both sides of the story, what everyone says, but perhaps the only thing that I'd say is that rather you can do it better by adding context and applying scrutiny to each side's claims, really applying critical thought and context. So I thought perhaps the best reporting in the early going today came from MSNBC, that's an American news network, uh, one of their reporters called Raf Sanchez. So here's a snippet of his report. We should be really clear. NBC News is not able to get into Gaza right now. The Israeli border is sealed. The Egyptian border is sealed. Our teams are not able to get there and to verify this directly. We should also say that the Israeli military at this point is not providing any evidence to back up its claims that this was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. They are citing intelligence that they have not yet made public. We should also say that this kind of death toll is not what you normally associate with Palestinian rockets. These rockets are dangerous. They are deadly. They do not tend to kill hundreds of people in a single strike in the way that Israeli high explosives, especially these bunker buster bombs that are used to target these Hamas tunnels under Gaza City, do have the potential to kill hundreds of people. Now, Sanchez actually went on to use an example of uh, a case where the Israeli military initially made a claim that turned out not to be true. It was uh, the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was, it said was killed by a Hamas gunman, uh, but later conceded she was shot by an Israeli, uh, Israeli forces. Now, note there that Sanchez does many of the same things that the NYT does, Everyone has done. He reports both claim and counterclaim. He concedes this is a live situation. Facts are difficult to verify. He acknowledges the uncertainty of what took place. He doesn't know. Uh, but crucially, I think he does give his audience some context there and information that will help make 
an assessment, help them make an assessment of the veracity and trustworthiness of the various claims flying about. And I think uh, refusing to make those observations out of the fear of being seen as partisan sometimes does cede the floor to people that want to make a claim that benefits their cause that might not necessarily have all the facts behind it. So I guess that's just a call to apply some critical uh, thought to stuff, to apply some scepticism. Well, speaking of more active misinformation, I suppose, how how did the platform formerly known as Twitter, of course, X, how did it fare as this news unfolded? Yeah, X, formerly Twitter, formerly a really good place to go or one of the top places to go when news was breaking not so much anymore it's really kind of bizarre in the air it's hard to tell what's going on there's lots of stuff flying around a lot of misinformation disinformation some of that came from official sources uh, the official israel state account posted a tweet purporting to show the rocket barrage by islamic jihad hitting that hospital but then it was pointed out by a new york times journalist actually eric toller who said the timestamps on those videos were actually 40 minutes after the strike took place so mm-hmm. that then the tweet was edited which is a new function on twitter you can edit them and it was edited to remove the videos that showed the wrong timestamp, but it retained the claim that islamic jihad had carried out the strike now there's strange stuff like that that might have happened on the old twitter as well because this was an official verified source but much mm-hmm. of the significant misinformation is actually a symptom of some of the changes elon musk has made his rule his reign and much of that's because verification has been put up for sale. If you're not on Twitter, you don't know what that means. You used to uh, have journalists, official organisations, celebrities, that kind of thing. They got given a blue check mark after Twitter verified their identity. Now that has been put up for sale. You pay eight bucks a month and you get your blue check mark. And so you have users with names like Israel War Room or the Spectator Index. Now that sounds like the Spectator. It's not the Spectator. It's just some guy. He's bought a check mark and he uses it to um, post information that seems like it's from a news source. But isn't it's just from some guy Israel War Room? Obviously, that sounds like it might be connected to Israel. Mm. It's not. It's just some activist group in the United States, and these accounts they post uh, very highly partisan, sometimes dubious information, and they get seen as legitimate because I've got that check mark and mm. those names next to it. Uh, isn't the uh, X testing some new feature in New Zealand, um, which it thinks might sort of improve the, the quality of information on the site? Yeah, at least the the bot problem. So maybe it won't help with this particular issue. But Elon Musk is now trialling a system starting today in New Zealand and the Philippines, where all new users, not not existing users, will be required to pay a dollar per year to be able to tweet or, well, post or retweet posts. So core functionality of the site will only be available to people paying a dollar a year. He reckons that on stop. Uh, but uh, people that you sign up to spam people from actually bothering to do that, reduce the count of bots. Now, he's also spoken, if I was being cynical, about turning X into a banking app, so maybe it would help that venture if he already had a whole bunch of people's bank details. I don't know, maybe that's too cynical. <laughs> anyway, it won't stop the issue of paying verified accounts posting baloney. Well, let's move on to the aftermath of the election. It seems this week our reporters have gone from touring the country on the campaign trail to now camping out in Parliament (laughs) in the corridors waiting for something to happen. 
Yeah, it's a real change in change in pace for the media, right? They've been covering the post-election, oh, the the pre the campaign. Mm-hmm. That's a, the pre-election period, and they've been going around the country, following the politicians up and down, breaking news. And now they seem to be confined to Parliament corridors, accosting people as they walk by, begging them for anything, please, a sliver of information. And that's especially true when it comes to the winners, national. Uh, more on them later. But the losers also do a post-election debrief and they get accosted too as they launch into their long rebuilding phase and the coverage pretty much follows the same format. Uh, They just, they they latch onto you and say, please tell me something. And Mm. only in this case, the MPs don't necessarily have, well, they don't have the afterglow of an election victory to lift their spirits and steal them for these exchanges with a desperate media. And that's made for some pretty tense exchanges between reporters and Labour MPs. So here's West Coast MP Damien O'Connor exiting the new caucuses or slimmed down caucuses first meeting, only to find a troop of reporters waiting outside. Is Chris Hipkins still the leader of the Labour Party? Can we consider that answer? What are you doing here? Now that was, to be clear, two clips spliced together. The first one, Damien O'Connor's coming out of the caucus room. He's being asked that question. There's a bleeped out answer there. Yep. Uh, that, that was a swear word. The F-bomb. Yep. That was the F-bomb. Indeed. Uh, and, then he's, and then he goes to the toilet, which he announces that he's going to, and then he, he gets accosted again on the way out of the toilet. Mm. Uh, so uh, probably not a pr- pretty terse exchange. Yes. I'm, uh, Jason Walls of Newstalk ZB said Damien O'Connor dramatically let his Labour colleagues down today. Uh, but, you know, it's pretty tough when, you re- when you're busting. You can get a little bit mad if someone stops you when you when you're busting. Yeah. So maybe you know maybe we should cut him a little bit of slack. He's lost his seat. He th- lost his seat to Maureen Pugh, years. didn't he? Yeah. So I mean, he's he's having a tough time of yeah. it. Yeah. And then you get out of the caucus, you're like finally uh, some relief, and then you're accosted again. It's tough. Now he wasn't the only one though who had a bit of a run in with the media. Yeah, Labor's Mount Albert candidate Helen White, she has a majority of 106 votes as things stand, which is just a little bit down from the 21,200 majority that Jacinda Ardern won in Mount Albert in 2020. However, she didn't take kindly to some tough questions from News Hub's Amelia Wade on her narrow margin in what was a Labor stronghold. Are you embarrassed about the result on Saturday? <laughs> uh, my result or...? Yeah. The parties. Um, no, I'm really, really proud of my result. How did you do so bad? How did you do so badly in Mount Albert, though? What a ridiculous question! I didn't do badly. I did really, really well. Now, really, really well. Uh, adamant there. The stand-up was pretty abrasive through its maybe two or three-minute length, uh, and it didn't get any less abrasive. We punched above our weight, and I'm really proud of my team. And you need to look at the results. Sorry, I've forgotten your name. Amelia. Amelia. Look at those results and you'll see. It was a really good campaign. What's your name? Can I get your name? Can I get, <laughs> I'd like to lodge a complaint. Uh, just a polite inquiry there. doesn't seem at all laden with barely concealed venom. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Was that the, the, the extent of it? Uh, n- not, a, not, not according to some 
media they said that 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 was there was more that like, there was more misbehavior or <laughs> yeah, by labor uh, in her package news hubs Jenna Lynch she highlighted what she saw as some fraying in the caucus which she observed in what she saw as certain MPs going off script the caucus already straying from script, talking about other contenders, Willie Jackson admitting some have leadership aspirations. Are you expecting that there will be a contest? That he'll have to fight to keep it? Uh, I hope not, but I'm not sure. No diligence done in presenting a face of unity. Uh, we have a leader currently. Uh, we haven't got a new caucus yet. Uh, we're not discussing leadership at the moment. Now, that was... Willie Jackson, David Parker apparently going off script. I didn't think they were that off script, to be honest. I think they were just being real, weren't they? Well, yeah, effectively. I mean, they've just been dealt a huge blow, haven't they? You know, It'd be pretty they, weird if they were just like, no, nah, it's all good. Don't if worry e- about it. If ever they can say what they want to say and, you know, is now, <laughs> they've got a whole three years or possibly longer. I think, think I might it. be overreacting, mate, but I, yeah. I, I kind of found that a little bit off because we, we, it's pretty off to ding politicians for giving something resembling an honest answer. We barely <laughs> ever get them, right? We get so annoyed at these politicians when they stick to their spin and their pre-prepared lines. And then... Then they, they give us, they real with us, they're yeah. straight with us, and we we ding them and admonish them when they for, for failing to stick to their lines. I mean, can they win here? Uh, it, it seems it's not a major, mm. but I mean, over the election campaign, we did have examples of journalists commenting on the horse race: who's doing the politics well, who's who's playing the game the best, over serving information to their audiences about the impact of certain decisions and policies. So this is kind of another example where these people's uh, performance and whether they're doing the buttoned up saying their lines correctly is yeah. prioritised. But you're being a savvy observer of political performance over communicating the import of these politicians and words and actions mm. to your audience. Well, even, I suppose, even if they are telling people to bugger off, <laughs> they are, at least Labour are talking uh, to the media, but uh, National has seemed to have opted to what, keep a bit of a tight lid on its interactions with reporters. That's right. Very intentional here. Chris Luxon has said he doesn't want to update the media too much on how his negotiations with New Zealand First and Act are going. So here he is at a media conference earlier this week. We're working very uh, strongly to build uh, relationships and also to work through the arrangements with the respective parties. We're going to do that uh, confidentially. We're going to do that in private. We're not going to be negotiating that through the media. And you probably won't get a lot of comment from me about that because I said I'd want to go to to work now and actually do it professionally um, and do it in a constructive way, and that's what we'll do. At another point, he said uh, he won't be playing parlour games with the media. Does that differ from how past incoming governments have handled things? A little bit. It certainly differs from 2017, where the media was receiving relatively regular drips of information from the parties involved in negotiations, especially, well, New Zealand First. I think at one point, Winston Peters fronted for eight interviews in one day, apparently. Mm. So reporters spent a lot of time scurrying around the beehive, trying to pick up any new crumb of information. And some were driven to the point of eccentricity. Honestly, they they went a little bit batty. So case in point... (laughs) RNZ's deputy political editor Craig McCulloch, who put together this report for Checkpoint in the style of the popular children's book, The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar. It's, it's work in progress, but uh, no, everyone should be confident. Soon the monarch butterfly will emerge. New Zealand First MP Shane Jones comments this morning, inviting the question, does that make Winston Peters a very hungry caterpillar? 
Just how much does he want? On Monday, he ate through one apple. But he was still hungry. Now, this went on, Mark. I couldn't play the whole thing as much <laughs> as I'd love to, but it, it ended, spoiler alert, with the new government emerging as a beautiful monarch butterfly. Sadly, we may not have, if Christopher Luxon really is clamping down, enough material for that kind of report this time around. But if we do, what's it going to be? It, Craig, call in. Is Winston Peters going to be the Gruffalo? He's going to be frightening but easily manipulated by a mere mouse, or is he the cat in the hat? A chaos agent spilling mess through the house. I mean, who do you think Winston Peters is going to be this time around? Text 2101, is it? 2101 with the children's book character you'd like Winston Peters to be. I would suggest the tiger who came to tea. That's a, that's a really good one. <laughs> I like that. Oh, good. That's how, why, well, why you've succeeded in this game for so long. Have I, though? <laughs> yep. How have journalists uh, responded to uh, Christopher Luxon's well, clamp down on this media engagement. Yeah, no no negotiation spoils this time around. Some of the language that he's used definitely has ticked journalists off. So here's News Talk ZB's Jason Walls taking exception to that parlour games terminology in particular. And that's what Christopher Luxon said this morning. He keeps talking about these quote-unquote parlour games that the media like to play, which is terrifically offensive. Christopher Luxon, if you're listening, it's actually called reporting the news to the New Zealand public. So we can have that battle when we see him later this afternoon. But in terms of the big... (laughs) Yes, it's actually called reporting the news to the New Zealand public. In newsrooms, uh, political editor Joe Moyer tweeted... It is kind of embarrassing. All those other political leaders said they wanted to run disrespectful and unprofessional negotiations. That's a bit sarcastic. I think she was being there uh, about saying, "Well, what what what's good for your predecessors isn't good enough for you." Are you uh, are you saying that Bill English or whatever was disrespectful and unprofessional? Now, to an extent, to to be a bit both sides myself, I get where Luxon is coming from here because it has to be said, very little does get revealed in these negotiation periods. It can feel a bit like. reporters are just scurrying about trying to read the tea leaves for any new information or permutations of the discussions without really shedding too much light on what's taking place. So as an example, this is a video put up by One News Today of Winston Peters walking through Wellington Airport this morning and each bloop you hear signals a new dodged question. How are you? Is it a good feeling? Mr. Peters, how long do you intend to be in Wellington for this trip? What's the most pressing issue for you in the next government? Yeah. Happy to be back? Possibly back in power? You've noticed they've uh, changed the Air New Zealand uh, safety demo. Is there anything you'd like to say, Mr. Peters? <laughs> He's, it was, he, was, he walked in complete silence. Oh, my favourite question there was the, the, the left field one. I, I thought that could have got a response. Have you noticed that they changed the Air New Zealand safety video? <laughs> I appreciate that. That was a long-haired reporter that I don't know, but if someone knows his name, then, then please let me know. Well, if one man knows how to play the game, after all these years, it is Winston Peters, isn't it? He's, he knows the pile of games very well. <laughs> and, and, but, I mean, to defend our media... Stand, media Watch stands up in defence of our media. It's not petty or pay, playing parlour games mm. to take an interest in the makeup of the next government, which, 
let's remember, Mark, mm. will have a profound impact on the lives of millions of our citizens. It's quite an important thing mm. to get information on, and it could really change all our lives. It could course. change all our lives, and the makeup of it and the policy concessions that are won in these negotiations could have a big impact. Too true. Now, if the media wasn't fond of Christopher Luxon's comments, the antagonism goes both ways, doesn't it? Because he gave a rebuke to reporters over some of their commentary as well. Yeah, here he is warning the media about their commentary on how negotiations could play out. But what I'm saying to you is uh, I just don't think you should be... Uh, there's a lot of people with their reckons, and I just put to you they could be very, very wrong. Now, that, he called it reckons there. It's an interesting way to start things off because I'm not sure the media loves having their reporting called reckons. Mm. It's possibly a little bit patronising. I'm sure many reporters would prefer to see their work labelled journalism or, <laughs> or at worst, analysis. Or I mean, you could, you could if it gets really bad, sink down to the depths that I'm in, commentary. Now, <laughs> it, it's not clear what reckons in particular Luxon is referring to, but it's worth highlighting something that was posted by Richard Harmon on the website Politics and he claimed that Winston Peters and initial negotiations had been offered the Speaker role in the House, which he promptly turned down. Was that wrong? I don't know. Now, Luxon wasn't uh, the only one getting upset over Ron... What, reckons is the word this week, though? This this is definitely reckons-level... Uh, analysis, I'd say. This is Derek, McNara- <laughs> Derek McNamara, mm-hmm. the founder of data and analysis site React Rugby, and he's talking on the Irish rugby podcast Off the Ball, which is also, by the way, on a radio station in Dublin called News Talk, <laughs> not to be confused with News Talk ZB. He's mm-hmm. talking before Sunday's match between the All Blacks and Ireland. The front rows, most of New Zealand's turnovers and penalties come from the front row. So Ireland have an edge there. Their second rows are quite old and they're not as, they don't work as hard as Ireland. So Ireland win there. Ireland's back, or New Zealand's back rows, Sam Kane doesn't know how to rook properly. I know I'm probably going to get shit for that, but like, that's the honest truth. He would be ranked one of the lowest accuracy uh, rookers in the competition. And yet he's starting for New Zealand. So we have the back row there. So if Ireland can keep it in the pack and frustrate New Zealand, then... Ireland having a massive chance, like a massive chance. They're never going to get a better chance. Now, I'd like to hear his report this week. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what everyone's been saying. It hasn't aged that well. Sam Kane was excellent in the match, despite his apparent inability to ruck. Uh, The the very elderly and long in the tooth Brodie Retallick and Sam Whitelock both Excellent. The Ireland front row looked more shaky than the All Blacks front row, etc., etc., etc. And boy, have we let <laughs> Derek McNamara know about it. So in the Herald, Paul Lewis devoted a whole column to crying about how off base this podcast was, saying, so React Rugby's searing pre-game analysis was, let me see now, ah, yes, about as wrong as you can be. Memo Irish rugby clubs, there may be some heavily discounted analysis and data going as the world reacts to react. Uh, longtime sports commentator Andrew Mulligan as well joining in, saying that the podcast should be renamed Off the Boil. Not Off the Ball. He says some of the worst <laughs> takes you'll hear here. Uh, to be fair, it wasn't just New Zealanders. The former Wallaby, Adam Ashley Cooper, he shared that audio along with the comment, who the F, who's this effing, I can't say it, Mark, yes. bloke, talking about how Sam Kane can't ruck prob- properly. 
Yeah, well, it's a bit of a time-honoured tradition, isn't it? Getting mad at the overseas rugby media when they get it so horribly wrong, uh, especially during a World Cup. Yeah, I think the inflammatory British rugby writer Stephen Jones, he's the oh, he's one that classic. we love to hate him. We hated him so much. Every utterance that he uttered, we, we wrote a new Herald story about it. <laughs> Do you think we might be a bit th- thin-skinned as well? Do you it's think? possible. Do you yeah. think that maybe we might be a I've little bit thin-skinned it. here, a little bit reactive, a little bit taking to offence too much? Mm. And let's face it, it was a pretty close-run thing. We could, we, I wouldn't get too arrogant about how good we are. No. We're pretty vulnerable, and I think Derek McManamara could have could have looked pretty prescient if a few different things had happened on Sunday. As it turns out, we're, we're making fun, but no. I wouldn't say we should count our chickens before they hatch. Well, Hayden, thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, before I go, I want to just shout out to the stuff journalist, Tony Wall. He yep. said, I'm declaring it. I'll run naked through the street if the All Blacks beat the Irish team next week. He said that last week. It's happening. We're holding you to that, Tony. Okay. Tony Wall, he's saying that he wants to do- donate $50 instead. No dice. <laughs> We're honor- you're honoring that.